Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBIMFI podcast. Andrew and I are co-hosts today, and today we're continuing our discussion on Campylobacter, and we're going to this time be delving into some of the specific issues that bioinformaticians need to keep in mind when studying this organism. Our guest today is Dr. Ozan Gongadu. He leads the Foodborne Enteric Pathogen Group at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where they study the physiology and pathogenesis of Campylobacter and other related enteric microorganisms like Listeria and Vibrio. He has a background in molecular biology and computer science. He completed his PhD at LSHTM back in 2011. He works on a number of different projects, continuing campy pathogenesis and somomics. And he started his position as assistant professor at LSHTM back in 2019. So hello again, Ozan, good to have you back. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> so last time we were discussing a lot of the theory and the sort of context for Campylobacter, why it's important and, and some of the nuances that are specific to it rather than other organisms. I think this time we're going to dive into the practicalities in terms of the bioinformatics and what someone jumping into this organism needs to keep in mind. So maybe we can start with back with the genome. I think you mentioned last time that the genome was sequenced back in 1999 at the Sanger. What else can you tell us about the genome that makes it special of, of Campylobacter? And, and in this case, it was Jejuni they did first. The first Campylobacter, it was uh, this strain NCTC11168, which a lot of people still use for their laboratory experiments. Relatively small genome size, uh, 1.64 megabases, approximately 1654 predicted open reading frames. And then, you know, there were some key things that came out of this. There were some key, key loci structures identified for lipooligosaccharide, for this capsule. It did not have classical enteric bacteria secretion systems. So at the time, there was no type 3 and type 4. Subsequently, down the line, some type 4 have been found in some strains in, on plasmids as well. And also the type 6 secretion system has been found. Some of the really interesting things that came out for this was the number, for example, of genes that contained homopolymeric tracts. So these are series of nucleotides up to 7, 8, 9. And what they can lead to is phase variability. So what that means is that if you're potentially encoding, you know, really long uh, gene open reading frame, and those two open reading frames were actually on two different frames, what it could do was that it could the polymerase can actually make errors and it could stop halfway or continue encoding the whole two open reading frames. And so these were often found on structures such as the capsule on the lipooligosaccharide, and they are, you know, believed to be mechanisms of giving diversity, essentially, for the bacteria to evade immune systems. So what is the GC content like of uh, Campy, like that would allow for those homopolymer, polymeric tracts to exist? The GC content is approximately 30%. 
However, generally the bacteria is considered to be incredibly promiscuous and it will take up DNA. So even if you do a transformation experiment within the laboratory, you can leave, you know, amplicons, you can leave PCR amplicons and you can leave, you know, transformation natural over the, on the bench overnight. And there's a, a chance that it could take up your, 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 yeah. So, and that, you know, that leads to some interesting questions because, you know, there are implications to that. Now, since then, there have been a number of different species and strains sequenced and, and we're up to, you know, you could probably download over 50,000 Campylobacter genomes now. I know some research that has come out recently looking at uh, a number of different Campylobacter strains, and I believe that the number was over 50,000. In terms of, you know, model reference organisms, you know, things like the EBI, for example, have, I think they have over 150 what I considered model well annotated reference organisms. And a lot of these were back in the day came from the Sanger Institute. And so there are differences between strains. So the classic thing that we, we're studying and we're finding now is the type six secretion system. And you know, this is quite this is quite a big thing because historically Campylobacter has not had a mechanism to to secrete effectors, to secrete proteins, to potentially damage other bacteria, to damage host cells or allow it to survive better. We found approximately that 25 to 30% of Campylobacter have type 6 secretion system. And this kind of resembles what we find generally in, in gram-negative enteric and gram-negatives in general. And so uh, this leads to the question as to does, do bacteria that have type 6 secretion system do they have an increased advantage in terms of competition, in terms of microbial population niche environment? So with such an extreme GC80 bias there, right? Are these homopolymer tracks really just an artifact? You know, are they actually real? Or is it just because we've used short read sequencing and it's not very good with homopolymers, you know? And if there's five or six there, well, you can't really tell the signal because the signal hasn't changed in the sequencer itself. So are these just, you know, sequencing artifacts and uh, how do you know they're actually real? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, it could, these were originally done with Sanger sequencing back in the day. And then more recently, with I believe they have been looked at with long read sequencing. And it's an area that has caused a lot of headache to researchers, because if you're growing the bacteria within the laboratory and you're passaging it, you know, every three, four days with Campylobacter, you have to basically take it and put it on a new plate so it grows. Essentially, it's like looking after a, a pet. There is a chance, for example, that these genes that are within the capsule or lipoligosaccharide will change in terms of actual product, protein, transcription, translation. And so you potentially are changing your bacteria. Now, recent research from, for example, the, the Quadrum Institute They've created a software, I believe it's pronounced Tatahuba. You may correct me. Tatajuba. Tatajuba, yeah. And this is an example of a piece of research that is, that is um, uh, analyzing these homopolymeric tracks in more detail. This isn't just a problem in Campy because this kind of situation occurs in other bacteria as well. So I was wondering, right, you mentioned that Campy can suck up lots of other DNA very easily and it's very promiscuous. Yeah. So... Would things like Tradis work well on this, you know, where you can put in some transposons and it can take it up easily? And can that tell us more about Yeah, I haven't personally done worked on done a Tradis experiment, but for, from what I've seen in the literature, Tradis experiments do work. And it's interesting, certain strains, 
for example, eight, another classic string, 81176, okay, which a lot, of the, a lot of people use for experiments, does have plasmid, a plasmid, P via P tet. However, what you find is that actually, if you passage it, you can lose the plasmid. The plasmids can drop out. And this is a constant headache with laboratory experiments because there's obviously tetracycline resistance on this P-TET plasmid in 81176. And if you're doing passages and you're continuing your experiment and then some of these plasmids have dropped out, that can have implications on the phenotypes that you see. So I've heard in the grapevine that there is phage that are associated with campi, but they actually can't be sequenced with alumina because of the epigenetic modifications and you have to go and use other technologies. So it'd be interesting to know how many of these sequencing projects have we undertaken with short read sequencing that are missing, you know, that critical component, uh, like you mentioned with passaging and the plasmids dropping out, you know, are we missing other phage that have dropped out and it's only with long read sequencing that we're actually going to recover that because they're actually able to sequence these molecules? Andrew, that's a great question. And the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not aware of that. I haven't heard it myself. You may be more up to date on that than I am. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. What I remember is that, for example, the, the original genome, the, the NCTC trip 168 genome, I, I as, you know, back in 2005, actually went to the Sanger Institute for a year. And one of the, I think it was 2006, one of the reasons for that is we wanted to update the genome. Okay, because within that five, six years since its original genome, original publication, there had been so much work that actually had updated and studied gene product functionality that I actually managed to update 20% almost of the gene product functions, which is not pretty bad going for a five, six year time span since the original genome. And I think at the time we basically published some work saying, you know, how important it is to obviously annotate genomes as well as you can, but let's not forget about the re-annotations. This was pre-next-gen sequencing. So what we actually found is that even in that trip 168 genome, there were CRISPR remnants within the genome and some of the adaptive, I think, they, is it the associated or adaptive proteins that are uh, uh, linked with the CRISPR region that we identified and we actually annotated within the genome. So yeah, in terms of the bacteriophage story, I'm not, I can't answer your question. I'm not, I'm not aware of that myself. Just a couple of other things that, that are quite interesting about the, that have come about from the genome sequencing. So I mentioned, for example, that historically, you know, secretion systems are not present within the genome. There is a, a, some research that actually shows really interestingly that the flagella, which historically is used for motility, actually secretes effectors. Okay, so there's a group in the US that has been working on this for quite a while, and they are, they are actually, their research is showing that the flagella can secrete effectors acting as a secretion system. And, and obviously this has implications in terms of bacterial competition and, and survival. Other things that came out, obviously related to Campylobacter in the genome, is why is it able to survive in this environment? So there were a number of genes that were identified genes that encode for enzymes that are involved in the breakdown of, for example, of reactive oxygen species, which are damaging to the bacteria. What about AMR genes? You know, that, that's the thing that's on everyone's mind at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting which angle you come from that, because there's been um, studies that obviously looking at genes that could be linked to AMR. Okay, so in terms, if you do a comparison of a, you know, a thousand strains, and they're looking for potential SNPs, potential GWAS studies that could be linked to AMR. And it comes down to also 
identification of the genes that could be linked to AMR. So just, just to go back on that, one of the points I wanted to make is as important and in terms of number as the oxidative genes that were involved in the breakdown of reactive oxygen species, for example, was, and this is the key bit I think about Campylobacter, is the number of regulators, the number of transcription factors, the number of regulators that were found to be involved controlling those enzymes, those genes that encode for those enzymes in the breakdown of damaging products. And that's where Campylobacter, in terms of the genome, we've seen that it's incredibly complicated. It has a highly complex system and uh, being able to survive in these non-ambient conditions. So these were some of the interesting things that came out from the genome projects. So it sounds like it's quite difficult to work with this in the lab. How far does the lab science really get you and how much do you have to start thinking about in vivo in studying CAPI? We all need to understand the physiology and pathogenesis within the laboratory. And there are a lot of different experiments. You know, you can do a lot of mutational experiments. You can do a lot of phenotypic assays within the laboratory. Again, there are issues about convenient, good animal models. Interestingly, actually, there are, in the last few years, some novel murine models that are beginning to actually give a disease phenotype that you see in humans within, within mice. And it's based on the principles of, you know, administering a broad spectrum of antibiotics for a few weeks to these mice and giving, a, a, I believe, a low zinc diet, which can then apparently give a same disease profile that you see in humans. So these are great. And we're learning more about the bacteria every day. However, what we've seen is that the situation in a real world scenario is very different because, you know, the bacteria is present in the environment. And it's present in chickens, in poultry, in high numbers. One of the things we've tried to do is to say, how can we apply this knowledge that we have in the laboratory that we're building on every single day? How can we apply this into the field, into real world scenarios, whether that be from low middle income resource uh, situation where you have backyard markets or peri-urban markets to industrialized systems. And so one of the areas that we've really tried to investigate is how the microbial population structure within the chicken gut microbiome is changing over time and how can can we infer information and knowledge from this as to why campylobacter is appearing typically in, in two weeks and and what what are the sort of microbial changes that are happening pre and post and try to understand you know the evolution of campy within the chicken gut microbiome over time so we barely know what's in the human microbiome uh, so surely there's very little research done on chicken microbiome and is is that what you're going to spend the next 10 20 years on yeah so definitely you know the experiments we've done up to now has been with 16s microbiome metagenomic studies and we all know the limitations that come with 16s studies they are useful but up to a point and i think you know taking advantage of the third generation sequencing of long read sequencing pack bio oxford nanopore is definitely the way to go forward so that we can try to appreciate, understand what's what's going on in the, chi in the, in the chicken microbiome. I think it's important that, you know, from our studies, one of the things that we've really taken advantage of is the metadata that comes with these experiments. And I think that's a key point. So metadata in terms of environmental, uh, you know, environmental factors, but also metadata in terms of, for example, if you're doing different kinds of experiments where you're looking, for example, like prebiotics, probiotics, these kind of things, 
things like the chicken weight, the feed conversion ratio, things like histology, the immunology of the chicken. So all of these factors come into play. Linking that with, with the actual sequencing information, I would say, is the way to go. For example, we found even with our 16S studies, changing the feed of the chickens has a huge impact on the chicken, chicken gut microbiome population structure. And also the greatest amount of microbial changes were happening a day or two before we find Campylobacter, again at day two weeks. In a subsequent study, for example, we found real impact in terms of, we wanted to assess the different types of farms, the different types of parameters within these farms, how they not only again impact performance and uh, microbial population structure, but what's the knock-on effect of that on Campylobacter numbers. And, you know, we found huge variation in terms of even adding such a, a supplement like omega which has been added into the feed for example of chickens as a performance enhancer without really understanding the reasons why but what are the implications of that addition of omega in terms of numbers for campylobacter and so yeah i think the availability of the technology in terms of next gen sequencing in terms of metagenomics microbiome with long read sequencing is the way forward I think there's been over 150 studies in the last six, seven years that have looked at chicken microbiomes with or without Campylobacter coming into the story. And they've all been with short read sequencing. And so that can only get you to a certain level of understanding of appreciation or mechanistically of what's actually happening there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it's only short read sequencing, you're going to be looking at it from a thousand yards. You won't exactly. be able to tell very much. Everything will be in 20,000 pieces and you'll only be able to make a rough guess, particularly since I'm sure many species in the chicken microbiome are totally unknown because they've never, they're probably not in humans, you know, all these commensals. Exactly. So the way forward definitely is with long read, but just, just to reemphasize, it's that metadata that really gives that extra additional information, depending on the experimental type you have. If you want to go for the natural infectivity studies, that's risky because sometimes you might not get full uh, infection at uh, the level you want. For example, we've managed to look at the impact using various aspects of our environmental data. How is the microbial, change, microbial population structure changing over time? And at one point, we was heavily based on competitive factors. And at a certain time point, there was a shift to linking to environmental factors. And the environment in this case being potentially the, the chicken itself. Obviously, the chicken is getting more healthier and it can potentially impact different microbial po uh, population structure directionality. So this is an example where you have your microbiome data, but you link it with analyses that allow you to, to to link your metadata into it and try to infer different aspects of your structure of your so population where structure. does this microbiome come from right because my understanding of modern poultry production certainly in the uk is you have eggs are laid they go to like a, a hatchery somewhere else you know they're hatched and then the chicks go to another place to be reared and so you got these multiple different factories and cutouts i presume they don't have a microbiome when they're in an egg so where is this microbiome coming from and how can it be so rich, you know, so quickly and so suddenly? Yeah. So the seeker of the chicken, okay, of the poultry is where we, is, is houses the biggest number of bacteria. And that's where we obtain the genomic DNA to do our experiments. You can also get it from things like the small, large intestine, the duodenum. So there are various points along the pipeline. It only takes, you know, a few campi to get into that farm and for that to get on within a chicken and for that to spread via the feces, you know, that will spread. And that farm, all of those chickens will potentially 
have Campylobacter. And that's the problem. You know, the problem we have is how, if it's in the environment, how do you stop it from coming into a farm? And then the question then goes, well, if it's that difficult to manage that, to stop that prevention at that step, how do you then, what are the steps that you can take to manage it? And that's where some of those other things that we talked about earlier come in. So has anyone done any genomic studies, say, looking at particular farms and saying, is it the same campy that comes in every time genomically, or is it different? You know, is it just a constant flow in from the environment, or is it just it's ingrained in the building infrastructure itself and you can never get rid of it? So I would say most of the studies have been microbiome metagenomic studies. But because only recently has the long read, I'm not, I'm not even sure if there has been a chicken microbiome long read study. Andrew, maybe we need to do one. <laughs> I, I think Mark Palin uh, did the chicken microbiome uh, using long reads. Yeah. So, so if he's gone down to species level, then it's possible to disentangle that and see if there were different species. Clearly, we know the, the limitations with short read and, you know, you're, you're most likely going down to genus level. So... Yeah, it's a good question. And we'd have to look into to Mark Pan's manuscript to observe that those results. Grant, it sounds like we have to have a joint project there to answer that question. <laughs> sounds good. I mean, get in touch. Anyone who wants to get involved, just get in touch. <laughs> the other side of that is if we look at the whole genome sequencing side of things, you know, there's a lot of sequences now available. I, I believe Arnold van Vliet has put a, a bioarchive study out where he's looked at over, I believe he's looked at over 50,000 isolates of Campy. So this is good as well, because this is looking at the other side of things, the whole genome sequencing side of things, comparisons in terms of location, phylogenies, and, you know, using really interesting and useful software such as Rory on 50,000 isolates would be fantastic. I, I feel like there's a gap in our knowledge. I feel like, for example, we haven't had those global thousands and thousands of strains, isolates, comparisons, those kind of studies. You know, Arno's is a really good one. I think, I, I'm not sure of the exact number, but I think it's over 50,000. So I think that's one of the first, actually, that have really taken everything out there and done a comprehensive analysis on that. So I think we have historically been missing that kind of study in Campylobacter. So I'm curious about... One aspect of this, which is we've been talking about the fact that much of the differences that drive Campy seems to be things that are regulatory or intergenic that are obviously going to get missed in short read sequencing. But I'm curious, in your opinion now, having gone through the whole, gone through these genomes, seen all these papers, and then looking at some of the long read stuff, how much are we actually missing? Is it a case that to really get the picture, like you can have two two Campylobacter that basically have the same gene content, but then behave very, very differently because of differences with homopolymers or differences in something else. Even when we compare the same strain, there are single nucleotide polymorphism differences. Okay, so even it, this is a case of, we're not just talking about, you know, different continents, we're talking potentially the same lab because obviously passages change things. And that's why you know, it's really important that when you do get your stock of bacteria, you make a, a significant stock of that because you don't want that variation to come in from you changing your, your reference strain. You want to be using for your project the same bacteria. 
So, so how much doing... plas- sorry, how much plasticity would you expect then yeah, so in, in one of these experiments? Well, at the least you'll have you know SNPs up to, but potentially up to over 10 genes with single nucleotide polymorphisms changing, which you don't know if it's going to have a phenotypic effect. Uh, there's been studies that have said we've looked at X amount of CAMPI and we've found that this is the core genome. How can you reliably calculate a molecular clock in, in a <clears> short time frame with, with a limited thing like that if you're expecting that much variation within the lab? And then does that not mean that to really understand Campylobacter evolution, we need to have long-term sampling so that we can identify that aberrant variation because I'm assuming bulk of that does not fix. Yeah, I mean, what what a lot of people do, this is what they do in the laboratory, right? They get their reference, they make a huge glycerol stock of that for the minus 80, and they will say for the next three years, I'm using this and I'm only going to passage it once or twice because I don't want to introduce variation after passaging it, you know, and a, a number of times. And, and even by default, if you passage it, you can... If you passage it, for example, over seven times, you might even physically see a difference on the bacteria. This is what makes CAMPI difficult to work with, these kind of attributes. That so what happens. happens with like the NCTC type strains? Have they been passaged like 50 times and are they the same as, you know, when the, the organism was first deposited? Yeah, so again, that can happen. And people have worked with, uh, if people have ordered that bacteria from, I don't know, ATCC or I'm not sure where else you can purchase it from. What they will tend to do is make a stock of this. And so you want to introduce as less variation as possible. It may be the case that a few years down the line, you're not able to replicate and reproduce the experiments, the assays that you previewed. What what you're expecting as your reference is not being produced. And at that point, it may be a case of going back to an older stock or actually reordering that bacteria from ATCC. But I guess this knowledge that we have now about all the changes of passaging, it wasn't necessarily known, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago when some of these strains were deposited in those archives. Yeah, I'm I curious. Think... I mean, we had this, we had a poke around with, with some salmonella and we were horrified to find that some of the reference strains were had one or two snips between labs. And that was, that was an absolute debacle. And then by the sounds of this, that if we just told everyone to send us a bit of DNA from their type strain, we'd probably have a very, <laughs> we'd probably have a, an entire cloud of variation there. Well, I remember looking at a Typhi CT18, which is like a type strain, and uh, that, the, the strain where we had resequenced, you know, as a technical control was missing like a 20 uh, KB flagellin like uh, genes. It was just crazy, you know? Yeah. This is a huge issue in not just Campy and other bacteria. The advice that we've always gone with is when you get your stock from, you know, NCTC or ATCC or whoever you're buying it from, you make a significant batch of that that will last you for a good few years. And you basically do your assays and experiments with an early passage because you don't want to introduce very uh, SNP changes or variation. And, you know, a good indication is you need to have a couple of assays that are your default assays, which you think these should always be producing this data. You should always be seeing an OD growth of your bacteria at this time point, at this level. And if you're seeing that kind of thing, then that's a rough indication. But again, there is a very good chance that some of those genes 
you know, the odd snip is occurring here and there. God, that sounds like unit tests for microbes. <laughs> that test-driven laboratory science. <laughs> so I would say, you know, with the availability of this latest technology, of course, it gives another layer of understanding and a layer of accuracy. Something that I think we've discussed on emails a few times recently is a lot of the time when you're doing whole genome sequencing with short reads, you have this DNA at the end of it, which is not necessarily assigned to any part of the genome, and it could most likely be part of plasmids. Okay, that's a really interesting area. Uh, there's a lot of these, let's look at the circular genome, and they're not even analyzing what's there in terms of this extra-chromosomal material in terms of plasmids. You can get more information, as you uh, mentioned in our discussions previously, from doing that with long-read sequencing. These factors, re we really need to move towards considering them so that when we know that we're working on this bacteria, this species, it has this plasmid or it has these plasmids because they will potentially have an impact on our phenotypic results that we're observing. I've observed that with other enterics that you can have very small plasmids that do just drop out with short read sequencing. You just, you, it's not a question of, of even having the trash at the back of the genome. They just never show up. There's no reads apparent. It just never gets, never gets picked up in the, in the protocol. So really there is a, a lot more to be done with Campy and uh, we're really at the early stages of understanding Campy and its genomics. And uh, we're going to be at this for, for many more years to come now. What I would say is that we've learned a hell of a lot in the last 20 years since that first genome sequence came out. We know a lot about functionality. We know a lot about physiology. We're starting to understand more and more of the intricacies, for example, of how and why, how Campylobacter can survive in the environment. I think what is 100% clear is because historically we have, it's been a difficult bacteria to grow and we haven't had a good convenient animal model. And allied to that, you know, linked to that is all of these difficulties in terms of changes in genomic structure, even, even through passaging, you know, these things cause issues with Campy. And I think certainly things like long read sequencing, cheaper sequencing that we can do sequencing more often, these kind of things will really help us in the future to try and get a hold of these issues. And something like that software, for example, to look at homopolymeric tracts in more detail is the kind of thing we need to basically have an explanation when one our phenotypic assays are not giving results that we, we we've seen historically and two to ensure that our phenotypic assays are actually giving a correct phenotype not caused by differences between strains for example yeah since you're touching on that new bioinformaticians are moving into the into working on campy what are some of the things that they need to know i mean this issue around passage and being circumspective about your genomics is important. That, that's something to keep in mind. You don't normally have to worry about that with other organisms. What else is there for Campy? I think that just the sheer variation between not only species, but, but even in strains. And I just think just to be conscious that sequencing a single Campylobacter, it's no way representative a strain is no way representative even of that species and you will get huge variation you know for, for scientists for computational scientists to come into the field really to be aware of that that there is this huge variation there is this huge plasticity having that in the back of your mind i think will go a long way in terms of helping you to to analyze these genomes 
Yeah, so you've already touched on Tata Jubas, one of the kinds of software you'd like to see coming out from bioinformaticians in helping with Campy, but what else is on the wish list? What else can, can BIMFIs do? Yeah, I think bearing in mind we have such an increased number of isolates and strains being sequenced all the time, those large genomic comparisons are great. And the software, you know, software that can do those pan-genome analysis, we touched on one with Rory, those kind of software, they really help. In the lab, obviously, we need a better convenient animal model. And, you know, we, there can always be, a, a, you know, incorporation of novel techniques, for example, to make mutagenesis, mutants, mutagenesis, a better and newer techniques. I think, I think there's a lot of laboratory scientists and I feel also that there is sometimes is still a lag in, camp, in the Campylobacter field that the historical people who work, for example, in pathogenesis and physiology, they are not necessarily adopting all the available tools bioinformatically, computationally available. And there is a lag. I'm hoping that the newer generation can have a sort of uh, foothold in, in both bioinformatics and laboratory science. It's not always easy to do that, but at the least, I would say that the next generation of researchers that come through, they will at the least, are what I feel, what I've seen, uh, more comfortable in a computational environment so they can at the least incorporate these tools in their research. Okay, and with that, that's all the time we have for today. We've been talking about Campylobacter and the specifics that bioinformaticians need to keep in mind when studying this organism. Our guest today was Dr. Ozan Gongadu. He leads the Food, Born, Enteric Pathogen Group at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And again, it's been really great to have you on, Ozan, and talking campy. Yep, and we'll see all of you next time on the Microbinfi podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at Microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.